Well, hey, welcome. It's a blessing to have you here today. And uh, I have just one announcement, I think. Here's the announcement. If anybody lives in here, I got to pull it back up on my phone. Uh, in these areas, there's a young lady who's moved here from New Jersey. Where's John Kennedy? He'd love that. But anyway, she lives in the shady side. I don't know where these places really are that much. I kind of do. Point Breeze, East Liberty area. And she wants to come to church. And she's a Calvary attender out in uh, New Jersey and asked if we had somebody coming from that way. If you are, just see me after the fellowship and we'll get you connected with them, okay? A uh, young lady uh, here for college, I think she is, all right? So uh, you could be praying about that. We're going to turn to the 11th chapter of the book of John as we continue traveling through John. But before I do, I want you to know that we're blessed to have two other of our team members from Hungary here today. I'm going to introduce them here in a second. They weren't able to be here um, during the presentation about our mission to Budapest. And the reason is, is I think, but maybe I'm wrong about this, Cody's in, the, in seminary, and he was preaching at his church, I think, and if that's not the case, well, then I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> but here, Cody and Sarah Andrews, why don't you two stand up and uh, give them a clap in the Lord. And the reason I want to tell you who they are is maybe after the service, you can interact with them. And they can give you some of the things. Sarah had uh, some amazing interactions with some of the people and even did an interview. I think she was a journalist. Was she a journalist? Yeah, with a journalist, young lady from Ukraine, which is an amazing story. And Cody had some amazing interactions too. So check them out and say hi and give uh, them some encouragement as they go. But we're turning to uh, John uh, chapter 11. And this is a very famous chapter, you know that, very famous. It's the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, if you've been traveling with us, you know that the book of John is multi-layered. There's so many layers to the, to the book of John. There's the theme of light and darkness. There's the theme of belief and versus unbelief. Almost every chapter is a, is a sign or a statement, and then the people are left to take in what Jesus was teaching. And on one hand, it's, each chapter is a, like an explosion of praise as people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But on the other hand, it's sort of heart-wrenching because some people are right up to the edge of surrender in their life to Christ, but go the other way and, and reject Christ. And that's another theme. But as I've been telling you all along, there's the famous themes of the I am statements. We're coming now to the fifth I am statement. In other words, Jesus is using the name that God used for himself in Exodus 3, the great I am or I am, and Jesus fills in the blanks. He says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door to the sheep gate, the good shepherd, and now today the resurrection and the life. But we also get 
to these seven, it just depends on what commentary you read, or eighth or ninth sign that Jesus does. But this one for sure is the seventh sign. The re- what I'm trying to tell you is some people say there's only seven signs in John. Some say there are eight. Some say there are nine. But def- uh, definitely this is the seventh sign. And you know the story, so I'm sort of going to let the cat out of the bag to begin, but I want you to see this. The seventh sign, the number of what? Completion, perfection. What was the first sign? Changing water into wine, where were they? At A. And what's happening here in the story of Lazarus? They're at a funeral. So Jesus is the one who keeps hearts, mends hearts, enters people's hearts, loves people all through the trials of life, the victories of life, the, the, the weddings, the births, the graduation ceremonies, the new jobs, everything. But he's also there at the cemetery and the heartache and the sorrow that people encounter. Isn't that beautiful? So this is a very important chapter. And you encounter this family, this Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was probably the younger brother of the two sisters of Mary and Martha. And where do you see them before? You see them at the end of chapter 10 of the book of Luke. If you want to turn over there, you can follow along with me. Verse 38, Luke 10, now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into, I want you to circle this, her house. Despite the fact that there were other people living there, namely Mary and Lazarus, it was Martha's house, so to speak. And you're going to see why here in a second. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. It's never good when you lose sight of why you're serving. If you're serving as unto men and you're paying attention to other people and their shortcomings, you're always going to crash. Martha crashes. She loves her sister, but her sister isn't doing what Martha wants her to do. And yet she's doing the right thing. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Think about that. Watch. Many? The complexities of life. The upkeep of the house. The things that she needs to do to run and have everything all uh, everything go smooth and all the circumstances she's worried about. But here Jesus says one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Now I just want you to think in your mind for a second. Who do you think the Lord loves more here, Mary or Martha? Don't answer the question because J- chapter 11 is going to answer it for us. It's good to sit at the feet of Jesus. 
But it's also good to learn lessons if you happen to have a Martha personality. Now, when you go back to John chapter 11, it says this in the first verse, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Now, if you know where you are in Israel, the Mount of Olives are here. There's a, you go down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane's there. There's the Kidron Valley. It has a little river or a creek. It's like a creek. It's not a river. And then you go up and then you go to the Temple Mount. And up here on the Mount of Olives, about two to five miles back, is a town called Bethany. It's just right up over the hill. And so he would stay there because it gave easy access to all the places that he needed to go. Plus, he was great friends with these people, right? He says, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. I want you to catch that. It was Martha's house, but there was something about Mary that made it her town. I wonder what it was, her sweetness, her following the Lord, the compassion, the strength in knowing the Lord, the patience with people, the tenderness that she had. It appears here that somehow, some way, she was known in the town. Mary ran the house. Excuse me, Martha ran the house, but Mary was the lady of the town. Who do you think Jesus loved more? Don't answer. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. If you never uh, understood that, or if you haven't understood that the Holy Spirit put this book or all these books together, but in John, you really see it for a particular purpose. Well, you're going to see it now. He says here in chapter 11 that this is the Mary. He's, there was many Marys in J Jesus's life. He wanted you to know the exact one he was talking about, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil. Guess when that story happens? The next chapter. The point is, he wasn't going in chronology here. He's trying to do specific things in each chapter by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? You can look right here at chapter 12, verses 1 through, I don't know, 3 or so. Uh, and, and actually even farther than that. And that's where the story is of the anointing at Beth Bethany with Mary and the, and the perfume and all that sort of thing. Oil of spikenard. It was that Mary, verse 2, back in chapter 11, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, so just so you know, I mean, this is a family that Jesus has been in their home. He loves them very much. He, uh, uh, you know, cares for them. They care for him. They're part of his family. He's part of the family. You, you get what I'm saying. They're very close. And here this man is sick. Now, what I would write right here, I would anticipate writing if I was just the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's probably what I would think the next verse would say. So Jesus got in his chariot or whatever he'd get in, his donkey, and he rushed right over there to save Lazarus. But look what you read. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Watch this. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you've been following along here at Calvary Chapel, we have just gone through the book of Job. 
And when you studied the book of Job, one thing that you and I and we are taught of all the mysterious things that were taught in the book of Job's, this is Job, this is right there at the top. Watch. Suffering isn't a bad thing for the Christian. And you, you people are like, oh, thank, I'm glad I came here this morning. But it's clear. Jesus himself tells us that sickness, this one in particular, he's not going to die. But just so you know, this sickness is for the glory of God. To make God big, that's what glory means. To see him in all of his bigness and substance and beauty and holiness and perfections. That's what the sickness is about. And for those people who teach that if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick, ignore it. That's a dangerous doctrine. Do we pray that people don't get sick? Of course. Do we want healings and miracles? Yes. We'll pray and we'll have faith. But here he goes. I want you to see that the very family that Jesus loved intensely is having a very difficult problem with health reasons or health problems and he says that sickness isn't unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Watch this. Now, Jesus loved, I love this, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Sometimes I think we get on the kick that God doesn't love Martha because she was such a busybody in the home. She was always prancing around taking care of everything and she was ignoring sitting at the feet of Jesus. But look here, Jesus loved Martha and he loved Mary. It's probably Mary needed to get up and work some more and Martha needed to chill a little bit. That's probably what was going on. But whatever, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus and I want you to see something. That this family that Jesus loved intensely came into some serious trials and some te temptations. And if you and we as Christians and I as Christians don't understand that there's always purpose to the pain, you're going to get off the rails. And here's how you're going to get off the rails. You're going to start saying things like, God, don't you love me anymore? I prayed for this, and you don't love me because you didn't fix it the way I told you to fix it. Now, you don't say it that way, but that's how you mean it. And if you're not going to fix it the way I want you to fix it, well, then I'm disappointed in you. And frankly, Lord, I'm not sure that you love me. But the Scripture says different. There was a purpose in this pain. There was a purpose in this sickness. There was a purpose in this trial. There was a purpose in this very difficult thing. And that's that the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see it? Somehow, some way, God is going to take it and use your pain, and he's going to be glorified, and you're going to come along for the ride, and you're going to be the better for it. You see it? One of the things that it's going to make you do, just turn over to verse 20. 
One of the things that it's going to make you do, when you decide that there's purpose in the pain, when you start to, as we taught in uh, Job, when you start uh, stop avoiding what's happening all the time and start leaning into it, why do you think Lamentations is right behind uh, Jeremiah? He's looking over the city, he's weeping, he's the weeping prophet, and then they give you this little book called Lamentations, and you read it and you sort of scratch your head and you go, hmm, I don't get it. It's because if you read the Lamentations, he always talks about the pain that he's going through, and then in all of the, all of the chapters, there's a pivot. And what he does is he pivots to the purpose of God. Yes, the pain hurts. No one's patting you on the head and say, suck it up and get over it. Yes, you're uh, fearful. Yes, you're anxious in these places. But you have to, we have to make the pivot to the goodness of God. You have to remember that he's good and he loves you. Even when he doesn't do what you want him to do. Because he never works the way you boss him around or I boss him around. We're going to Jerusalem. I always say that if you don't know. That's the $5 Jerusalem fund. But anyway, (laughs) it's okay. Mine goes off sometimes too. So Jesus loves these folks. And it says he stayed more days in the place where he was. What? (laughs) Isn't this one of those places where you read and you go, what? Why didn't you get in the car and sprint? Why would you stay? Well, you got to know something. The messenger came. And as we see and as we keep reading, if you read through this, look in verse 14. Jesus said to them plainly, hey, Lazarus is dead. So when the messenger came and they told him he was sick, Jesus And his fellowship with the Father knew that Lazarus has died. That's the first day. He waits two more days. It makes, in my count, and I'm not very good at math, three days. And then he travels on the fourth day and he gets there. And as he's getting there, here's what I wanted to show you. Martha comes running out to him. By the way, she's breaking custom right there. The Jewish folks at this time would for seven days sit in their house and receive company. So Martha's sort of breaking out of that, and she goes out in verse 20, uh, went and met him. But Mary, you see, sat in the house. Now watch this. Go over to verse 28, and when she had said these things, she sent her, or went her way, this is Martha, and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she rose quickly, and she came to you. Watch this. One of the purposes of pain is that you'll run to Jesus. You know what happens in our pain sometimes, in our suffering. We want to run to everything else. Are we against doctors? No. Counselors? Nuh-uh. We, we're, no, no, we're not against those things. But we try to fix it and manipulate it and do it. And often the last person we go to is Jesus himself. Here, the disciple or the family that Jesus loved has a sickness, a sickness unto death. 
And that makes the sisters run to him, you see. One of the purposes of our pain is to run to Jesus, to keep us on our knees. When have you felt closest to the Lord? I felt closest to the Lord in my life when we had a real health scare, like real health scare. And for about, I don't know how many months, two, three, four, five months, <laughs> we thought one of our kids had a disease And we were just on our knees every night. Every night. Unborn kid. And we were on our knees and we were on our knees. And we felt the presence of the Lord like we've never felt in our life. And there was evidence on sonnet, whatever you call the things, the images there was evidence on these images. I mean, there was unmistakable human evidence that this was happening and it was real. And we thought that one of ours had a thing called polycystic kidney disease. And that was not good for a long-term prognosis. And it just drove us to the Lord. And through a whole great set of miracles, I won't tell you today, the Lord healed him in the womb. But here's another thing that that trial, that suffering, if you want to call it that, did. I want you to see this. We saw Jesus in ways that we'd have never seen Jesus without that, whatever you want to call it, scare or whatever, trial, whatever you want to call it. We, never, we would never have seen him in that way. The tenderness, the way in which he met us, the way in which he propped up our head, the way in which he gave us peace, even though we were sad and frightened, all these things. We would have never seen it without that scare. Never. And that's another thing that Jesus does in the pain. He actually says in here, you don't get it in the New King James. I think in the, uh, the King James it says it this way. Uh, it says this, um, he stayed two more days in, the, in this place. Or there, there's, a, there's a verb or there's a, a connecting word in there, like therefore or something like that. It's because he loved them, therefore he stayed two more days. You get what I'm trying to say? You don't get it in the New King James. You get it in the King James. Because he loved them, he stayed two more days. Are you catching that? There was something good and glorious about to happen in their life. And they were going, what were they saying? And I'm not criticizing them because I would have been saying the same thing. Martha was saying, look down here in verse 21. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now there's a debate. Was she being critical here or was she just stating the fact? But think about it. Normal human reaction. Sheesh. You ever said this to the Lord? Lord, if you'd have done it the way I told you, we, we, this would have never, ever happened. Here, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
And Jesus said to her, he reminds him, by the way, in verse 23, he reminds him what he's already said in verse 4, your brother will rise again. Well, look in verse 8. The disciples say to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Why are they saying this? Because, see, they're 20 miles away. Uh, 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 well, they're, they're up in uh, Bethany, but uh, they're, they're coming down, uh, and he wants them to go up into the places of the, um, uh, of the Temple Mount and that sort of thing. So the disciples say, Rabbi, lately uh, the Jews are trying to kill you, and are you going to go there again? And he's like, yeah, we're going to go there again. And the reason he's saying that is, uh, he answers and says, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. Folks, don't believe in soul sleep. There's no such thing as soul sleep. The Bible always uses sleep as a metaphor for death. You get it? The Bible clearly tells us that when we're absent from the body, we then go into the presence of the Lord if we're in Christ. There's no soul sleep. But what they're doing here is they're just using that as a metaphor. And what he's just saying right here is, and I think this is important. You kind of blow by this in the story of Lazarus, but it's so important if you get it, It'll bless your heart, and that's this, is that Jesus is on the timetable of his father, and he's not worried. Now let that sink in. I got news for you. There's a day appointed to us, unless Jesus comes first to take us back in the clouds, there's a day appointed for each of us for us to die. And until that day, you ain't going to die. But that day, you will die. You, you get what I'm saying? So salvation is today, but don't be so fearful. The Lord has you until the day he's appointed. Here, Jesus is trying to tell them, yes, but you don't understand. There's a day in which I need to work, and I'll walk in the light. And that's a beautiful thing. He was on the divine timetable, the one that the Father has sent. That's another theme of John. And then his disciples, verse 12, said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. In other words, oh, he's sleeping? They didn't even understand. And he's like, yeah, sleep's good for him. Let's, let's let him keep asleep. Isn't that funny? We'd say stuff like that, wouldn't we? Jesus spoke of his death, however, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Come on, folks. That just kills soul sleep right there. Just take your friends right there. Say, it was shadowy in the Old Testament. It does talk about sleep in the Old Testament, but come on. They didn't know everything. Jesus just knocks it out of the water. He's talking about death when he talks about sleep. Well, then Jesus said to them, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Come, come on, the Bible shocks, shocking some places. That's a shocking one. You're glad? I just want you to think about your own heart, about when the Lord doesn't do what you want him to do. If you're reading this through for the first time, you, you're lying if you say that's not shocking. <laughs> what do you mean you're glad? You're glad that I wasn't there? He doesn't say he was glad that he died, but he says, I'm glad that you weren't there, that you may, but what? That you may believe. Why could he be glad? Watch this. Because Jesus was certain of the outcome. 
and the people weren't. So when are we going to stop trusting us and what we think and how we try to manipulate situations and just trust the Lord? You get it? Because he knows what's coming down the road. He knows what's best for you. And when you get into a place where you start doubting the Lord, and we can get in those places, remember, it doesn't end well. We have no peace. We have no joy. We get sapped of it. We compare. Our joy is stolen. But when we just leave it into the hands of the Lord, wow, it's beautiful. He says he's glad. He's glad because he's certain of the outcome. He knows by the time he's done with Mary and Martha, Lazarus is going to be back alive. By the way, Lazarus isn't resurrected. You get this, right? He's resuscitated. There's a big difference. He was brought back to life, but he died again. You know that, right? He died physically. We'll talk about that difference in a minute. But he's glad because he's certain of the outcome. And he's glad because he's doing the best for Mary and Martha, and they don't even know it. Boy, that that convicts me big time. Here, how about this? So Thomas, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It was very uh, typical for a Hebrew to have um, guy to have two names. We don't know who he was twins with, but think about it. He was a man full of doubt. Watch. But he was also a man full of devotion. Catch this right here. Don't get upset with Thomas. He's our twin. It says, well, let's go with Jesus. If Jesus says, let's go to Judea, we're going, Thomas says, and I don't care if we die. That's what he's saying. He's our twin. Sometimes we're courageous. Sometimes we're not. Man, do we need the Lord. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, you need to know this, and this will make more sense to you. Why four days? Rabbinic teaching uh, teaches, rabbinic teaching now, folks. This is not Christian teaching, but the rabbinic teaching of the day You had seven days of mourning, but the first three days, the the rabbis taught that the spirit hovered above the body so that maybe, possibly, they could be resuscitated. So now you know why it's four days that he was waiting. Because on the fourth day now, the spirit to the rabbi's teaching had departed and there was no way he was coming back. Fourth day. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Is God's word perfect or what? Is God's plan perfect or what? Now, you didn't know that as you're reading the beginning, or at least I didn't when I was a kid. I would always say, why didn't he go? Why didn't he just go? But Jesus was doing something great and grand and glorious. Now, Bethany, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning her brother. Now, that's normal because that's what the people would do. They would have the seven days of mourning and people would come to them. 
Now, Martha, as soon as, or uh, had joined the women to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house, just like Mary's always doing. She's sitting in the house. I don't think she's lazy, but she's at the feet. She's She's the one to take time and all that sort of thing. Well, Martha uh, said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He reminds him, look at this. He reminds him of the promise that he already gave, or he reminds her of the promise that he already gave. That's powerful. How do you live healthy in the Christian life? Stand on the promises. Not how you feel or what you think should happen. Don't boss God around like he's your butler. You're his servant. He's the captain of our salvation. We're the lieutenants, not the other way around. God bless you. So he says, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, what's going on here? See, the Jews knew from the Old Testament, you could go to Daniel 12, 2, you could go to Isaiah 26, verse 19, that seems to speak of a resurrection. Earlier, even in John, we know that there's a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death. They speak of it in John chapter 5, or he speaks of it. And so, Jews, even at this time, knew that there was a future resurrection. Are you getting that? And so she says that to him. I, I know that he's going to rise again. I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection of the last day. That's good. Look, she's being all theological on Jesus. Isn't that funny? That's funny. She's given the theology to Jesus. I know that. I know that. But Jesus says something different. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection. Jesus says to her, whoa. Notice what he doesn't say. I'm going to give you resurrection. I'm going to give you life. He doesn't say that. He actually says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's why I read to you 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. All of these things are found in Jesus. When I need salvation, or excuse me, when I need my car fixed, I go to Bob. When I need salvation, no offense, Bob, I go to Jesus. When I need sanctification, I go to Jesus. When I need peace, it doesn't say he'll give you peace, although it does say that. It actually says he is peace. It doesn't say he'll give you comfort, although he will do that. It says he's the God of all comfort. He is comfort. And when I talked to the students this week, I thought the number one thing that we could do as Christians for them and for ourselves is to meet with the Lord every day where we can receive from the Lord. The problem is we have stupid phones and stupid Netflix and stupid hobbies, and I love hobbies more than anyone in here. And we get all involved in our kingdom and our hobbies, nothing wrong in and of themselves of any of that, but we crush the time that we're to be with the Lord. And that's where we receive his strength and life and power, and we're not doing it. And I'm convinced that's one of the reasons that the Christian, uh, Christian churches in America are impotent. Well, he says this, I am the resurrection 
and the life. We are saved by Jesus. So what is resurrection? Resurrection is the bodily resurrection, right? The bodily resurrection that we're going to receive when Jesus comes in the clouds and we're caught up with him. The Bible tells us, now track with me. I'm going to connect it, but I'm going to go in a circle because that's the way my mind works. The Bible tells us in Revelation that there's a second death. It's the death where everybody who has rejected Christ goes into the lake of fire or hell. You can go read about it in the book of Revelation. And we know that when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he must not be currently talking about physical death because Lazarus is dead, folks. And all the saints up until this time have died physically. And I got news for you. If Jesus doesn't come back first, we're going to die. Physically. But we want to never be at the second death. What is death? It's a separation from the real you, from your body. It's a separation. What is spiritual death? It's being separated from where we were intended to be, in heaven, in the lake of fire. That's why it's called the second death. So watch this. Watch this. If you choose to be born once... In this life, John chapter 3, you're going to come to two deaths. Physical death and the death of going to hell. If you choose to be born, uh, born twice in this life, watch this. You're born physically by your mom and then you're born again. Watch this. If you choose to be born again once, you're only going to die once. And you're only going to do the physical death. You get it? Because as soon as you die, watch, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord with eternal life. When does eternal life start? The day that you physically die? No, it starts the day you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Are you getting it? The point is, this is resurrection. You have new life. And you're going to be resurrected because Jesus said he's the first fruit of the resurrected ones, which means more are coming behind him. Now, see, this is powerful. You're never going to die in the sense that somebody who's without Christ is going to die. You're never going to die. You have eternal life right now, and it's all found in the person of Jesus. Oh, by the way, Here's where I think Christians make a mistake. You go, oh, resurrection power for my glorified resurrected body. Yes. See, Jesus corrected Martha. He goes, don't think about it just totally in the future. Yes, it is in the future. Here's why. Because we have resurrection power now. You could look at these verses. Romans 6.4, Galatians 2.21, Philippians 3.10. And the Bible says we live by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, well, I thought that was good. But anyway, only Angie thought it was good. So he's doing it right here. He's saying, yeah, 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 Martha, I get it. There's the future resurrection. Yes, but I'm the resurrection power, and you can have a resurrection power now. 
So when you're fearful and you're anxious and you don't understand and you don't know which way to turn and you're in a relationship that's gone bad and the boss fired you and you get cancer and all these different things, when that happens, you have resurrection power. When I come into your life, you might think a life is dead and dry and dreary and I bring life, resurrected life to you. And so now you think, well, I could never share my faith with somebody else, or I couldn't be, uh, you know, uh, uh, quit that drug or quit that addiction or whatever. You have resurrection power, and he wants you to know it. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be addicted. You don't have to be in a besetting sin. You're free from all that, and you have the power of God with you, and it's in Jesus We could stay here all day. I am the resurrection and the life. Christ is with us at the funeral just as much as he's with us at the marriage. Wow. And in fact, in the book of Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul even says, if Jesus, I'm paraphrasing now, if Jesus is only good for this life, then what good is he? I mean, he says it nicer than that, but he says it. Wow. We have resurrection power. We're going to have a resurrected life, and we have eternal life. And he says, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You get it? You might die physically. If you're born twice in this life, you die once, physically. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And many of these young people this week have expressed that they believe and want to follow the Lord. And they got baptized and signified to the world that they're never coming back. They're going to follow the Lord as they live the crucified life. And many of you have done that. And this is what you're saying. I believe it's a settled expectation of trust. It's not just intellectual assent. It's my whole life I'm giving to you. That's how much I believe. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary. She came, and as soon as she heard, she comes to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who went with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, hey, she's going to the tomb to weep there. But I want you to see something. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. She's always at the feet of Jesus. And she said to him, I want you to catch this. If you're tired and you're bored, Don't be bored here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I want you to notice something. She said the exact same thing that her sister said. Bad company corrupts. You be careful when something you don't like happens. What do we often do when something happens? What do we do? We run to the person that will commiserate with us and not tell us the truth. And we just cry and grope and complain and da 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 And before you know it, both of you have rubbed off on each other and it's not biblical. Here you got this lady that sits at the feet of Jesus and she's parroting what her sister says. Some say this isn't a critique, but maybe, maybe not. But be careful. Be careful when that happens. Find friends who will tell you the truth. The wounds of a friend are a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, folks, if you're a friend that wounds, you don't have to 
bludgeon people all the time. (laughs) Love covers a multitude of sins. Be careful and cautious and loving, but find people, friends, who will tell you the truth. Here, Mary had been commiserating with her sister. And you can imagine what her sister was like. I can't believe this. Jesus. She probably said it way nicer, but the same thing came out of her mouth. Therefore, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who he came with were weeping, he groaned in the spirit. That word is only used here in the New Testament, and it means a horse that snorts. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Like a stampeding bronco. He's really ticked off. What do you think he's ticked off about? Is he ticked off at Mary and Martha? I don't think so. What he's ticked off about is the ravages of sin that leads to death, that lead, led to the death of his friend. He hated sin. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, hey, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus, watch this, wept. You have this unbelievably great picture of the divinity of Jesus here, who's going to raise his friend from the dead and the humanity of Jesus who sympathizes with us. He's weeping. Think about it. The one who came out of the heavens, who created all things. The one who's going to march to the cross here soon, the one who's got bigger fish to fry, so to speak, is here with these two ladies and a guy, and he's crying because of the ravages of sin and how it's impacted the family, even though he knows he's going to bring him back to life. You get that? That's beautiful. Jesus sympathizes with you and I. He weeps. You could read Hebrews 4.13 for that. He weeps. He's a man of sorrows, Isaiah tells us. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. I I know we got to go here quickly. But I got to tell you something. This is a call right here. Jesus shows you that he authentically loves people. Sometimes in the Christian world, I think what we do is we put on this smile and it never comes off and it's sort of fake and inauthentic or not disingenuous. Is inauthentic a word? But I don't think so. But anyway, disingenuous and we sort of, you know, hey, how you doing? I'll pray for you, sister, brother. And we're just real surfacey with one another. And, you know, we're just never real. And we just you know, I just want to make sure we have more people in the youth group so we can have this big youth group with rock walls and all kinds of stuff. And maybe we'll get some music back here and get some more people in here. I don't really, and, and what the, the pastor sometimes is thinking, yeah, man, maybe I'll be famous. And that's not authentic. And Christians can do that. Coffee houses and blah, 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 and Instagram and gee whiz, where's the Christianity going on here? Do you love me? Do I love you? People respond, even the enemies here. Jesus said, how will they know you're a disciple of me? They're going to know you by authentic, real love. By the way, one of the big things that I left out as I got excited about something is Jesus loved the family. In the first verse that he uses the word loved about the family, somebody needs to hear this today. He doesn't use the word agape, unconditional love for the family. You know what the word is he uses? Phileo, brotherly love. Here's why, I think. 
And then later on, he starts using here in the Greek, agape love, unconditional love. You know why I think that is? Because God wants you to know that he likes you, not just loves you. There's a group of people that are going around that feel like God loves us because he loves the world. And we're just, he just sort of loves a blob of people. But he loves you. And he loves the Marthas and he loves the Marys. All different kinds of people and everybody in between. He loves you, but he likes you too. That's important to know. Well, here he's, this love that the Lord had for them came out and the people were moved when they saw the, 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 the ruling people when Jesus wept. Now watch this. Then Jesus again, verse 38. Uh, anyway, verse 37 says, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Of course, when Jesus doesn't do what you expect. But then it, Jesus groaned and himself came to the tomb and took a stone against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, by, Lord, by this time, it stinks in there. In the King James, it says he stinketh. For he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? He quotes verse 4. He's saying, live by the promises of the word. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. I promise. I'm going to go fast after this. We're going to finish this chapter. I'm going to go fast, but you got to know this. Jesus showed us how to live in perfect dependence upon the Father. He never stopped being God, but Philippians 2 said he laid down his rights and privileges to his deity. Did he stop being God? No, he never stopped being God. But he lived as a man in perfect dependence upon the Father. Look what he's doing here. He's going to do a miracle, and he's asking the Father for the power to do it and the resource to do it. He's showing you and I how to live in dependence of the Father. That's amazing to me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came out, bound hand and foot with grave claws, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. The perfect blend of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus does the saving. Lazarus comes out. But watch this. Uh, Jesus says to them, you take off his grave clothes and let him go. What has happened? People get saved, but then they come to us. And you're to disciple them and start to show them about the new man, taking off the old man, putting on the new clothes. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen, verse 45, the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. He's just following in the uh, theme of John. Some believe, some don't. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, what should we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, he was the high priest. By the way, he was a Sadducee. He didn't believe in the resurrection. But anyway, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, 
You know nothing at all. Wow, how nice. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Here's this guy who's setting himself up for Christ. He makes this proclamation and it turns out to be prophetic. God can take anything and use it for his good. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Just like the good shepherd, he comes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And we're one church, going to be one church or our one church. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a place called Ephraim, which is about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. And there he remained with his disciples. And the Passover, the Jews, was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus, spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report, he should report it that they might seize it. Now, just... Quickly, Lazarus is, as Warren Wearsby points out, is an amazing picture of the sinner who trusts Christ. You know this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Lazarus is dead, and all sinners are dead in their sins. He decayed because death and decay go together. All lost people are spiritually dead, but some are more decayed than others. But no one can be more dead than another. Lazarus was raised from the dead by the power of God, and all who trust Christ have been given new life and lifted out of the graveyard of sin. You can see John 5.24. Lazarus is set free from the grave clothes, but so are we, Colossians 3.1, and given new life and liberty. And you're going to find him seated in John chapter 12, verse 2. Look, he's sitting at a table with Jesus just like we've been seated in the heavenly places. And then if you go on in chapter 12, verses 9 and 11, many people wanted to see his living witness, and that's uh, where you and I are called to be. You and I are called to be a trophy of God's grace, to scream the gospel with our life, to scream it with our life, to share with people. Well, one last thing. John 11, as I mentioned, does this. It reveals the deity of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, it shows us the utter depravity of the human heart. Do you remember in the Abraham's bosom when the guy is in, you know, the place called uh, Hades, you know, and he's down there and he says, hey, listen, I'm so worried about my family. If, if you would just send somebody back, uh, somebody that would come from the, be- uh, the dead, then people would repent. Well, listen, folks, not only did Jesus do that, Lazarus came back from the dead, and watch this, the officials wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Here's the chapter that shows us the deity of Christ and where some people believe and surrender and give over their whole life, and some people get the presentation of the gospel and say, no, that's not for me. The utter depravity of the human heart. 
One pastor said this, I don't like crises, but I like the opportunity which crises supply. The death of Lazarus brought crises to Jesus, and he uh, was glad because it gave him the opportunity to demonstrate in the most amazing way what God could do. You want me to read that again? I'm going to read that again. Maybe you don't want me to read that again. The death of Lazarus brought, brought crises to Jesus, and Jesus was glad because it gave him the opportunity to demonstrate in the most amazing way what God can do. For us, every crisis should be like an opportunity. Why? Because the design of God, another pastor says, is that every one of us should be a living proof of his power. You know what I've just seen this week? <laughs> and I've seen opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. I wouldn't call them a crisis, but here's what I've seen this week. Uh, you, you know, and kids, the Bible tells us, don't let anyone despise your youth, make fun of you because you're young, or think less of you because you're young. But I've seen a group of kids uh, that have come here under the umbrella or the name of Jesus Christ. And they've had amazing amounts of fun and love, but they've always come back to the word and to worship and to praise. I've seen people who've wanted to be a demonstration of the most amazing things that God can do. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here this morning and we're thankful and grateful that you give resurrection and life, but not just give, you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, I thank you for your purposes and plans and not mine. Lord, just like me, there's lots of people in here who have gone through very difficult trials and circumstances. And while we didn't exactly click our heels and jump up and down that we were in those circumstances, Lord, we were thankful that we saw purpose in it, and we were thankful that you drove us to yourself, and we're thankful that we began to know your love more and to know you in deeper and greater ways. So, Lord, I pray together that as we move out of here, we would remember that we live this life by the resurrection power, not by our own strength. Thank you for that tremendous truth. In Jesus' name, amen.